If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Since Elizabeth I was less than three years old when her mother was executed, it's often thought that Anne Boleyn had little influence on her life. But according to Dr Tracy Borman, that assumption is misleading. Tracy has written a new book on the connections between mother and daughter, and she spoke to Lauren Good about the impact that Anne Boleyn had on her daughter, both as a woman and a queen. Hi Tracy, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. Hi Lauren, it's such a pleasure. We are talking today about your wonderful new book, Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, The Mother and Daughter Who Changed History. What brought you to focus your research on this relationship? Well, quite apart from the fact that they're two of my favourite women in history, the idea was really born actually a long time ago. Uh, The second book I wrote back in 2009 was Elizabeth's Women. So all of the female influences on my favourite queen. But of the 50 or so women I wrote about in that book, the one who I really wanted to explore more was her mother, Anne Boleyn. It just felt like there was so much more to say, so much more research to do on their relationship, which traditionally, I think it's fair to say, has been overlooked. And for good reason. Elizabeth was less than three years old when Anne was executed. So the assumption had been that they really didn't have that much of a relationship to talk about at all. Uh, So I wanted to find out more. And before we examine this fascinating relationship between these two highly influential women, could you please provide a potted summary of Anne Boleyn's life up to her birth of Elizabeth? Absolutely. So Anne Boleyn was the daughter of a very ambitious courtier, Thomas Boleyn. It's often said that she was a commoner, but actually, you know, the Boleyns had a a decent pedigree. Their base was Hever Castle uh, in Kent, which of course still exists today. Now, Thomas Boleyn um, was very canny in securing positions for his three surviving children. So Anne, her sister Mary, and her brother, George. Now, in her early years, both um, Anne and her sister Mary spent time in France. They served uh, the Queen of France. And then Anne made her entrance uh, in the English court in quite dramatic fashion in 1522. She took part in a court pageant, playing the part of perseverance, which proved quite fitting because In 1526, so four years later, she had really become Henry VIII's love interest. That's when we know for sure he had fixed his gaze on Anne Boleyn. But it would take him seven years until finally he was able to marry her because, of course, he was already married to Catherine of Aragon and divorce wasn't exactly commonplace in Tudor times. So they married in 1533. Anne was... Queen of England, and she made sure everybody knew that fact with the most glorious coronation ever seen in history. And Henry was willing to indulge that expense because Anne was heavily pregnant by the time of her coronation. And 
Henry confidently expected she was going to give him the son that had eluded him and Catherine of Aragon, and he desperately needed a male heir. And you've just mentioned that Henry VIII really desired a male heir. What sort of situation was Elizabeth born into when her sex was discovered? Well, that's right. It was such a a tense situation, apart from anything else. Anne knew that everything was riding on the sex of her child, but she was a very confident woman, and certainly outwardly so, regardless of her private fears. And I think she pretty much promised Henry, if you marry me, I will give you a son. Because this was not an age where queens were acceptable. Uh, Queen's consort, yes, not Queen's regnant. It would have been abhorrent to the people of England if Henry VIII had left only a girl, uh, a female heir, to rule after him. So it had to be a boy. But of course it wasn't a boy. On the 7th of September, Anne gave birth to Elizabeth. Now it is my favourite irony in history that it was seen as a disaster Henry was furious about this. He hid his disappointment quite well, but he was furious and disappointed that after seven years and no end of trouble, really the Reformation was sparked by his desire to marry Anne Boleyn. And yet she'd just given him a daughter and he already had one of those, the Princess Mary. So it was a bit of a catastrophe. But I think it's very important to say this wasn't the end for Anne Boleyn. She'd proven that she could have a healthy child and she was still relatively (laughs) young-ish, although by the standards of the time, being in your 30s was seen as towards the end of your childbearing years. So the pressure was on for her to now produce that male heir. And you speak of the tension and disappointment as a result of Elizabeth's birth. Did any of the customs or celebrations surrounding the birth change as a result of Elizabeth not being a male heir? They certainly did. So an awful lot had been planned before Elizabeth's birth. Jousts, fireworks, tournaments, uh, letters had been drafted uh, by the Queen announcing the birth of a prince. Well, they had to be altered straight away. And you can see where they've gone back and they just add one S after the word prince uh, to make it princess. Um, And now all of the jousts were cancelled, the fireworks, the bonfires, the celebrations that were going to take place across the kingdom, they were all quietly abandoned. And the King of France was going to stand as godfather, but he didn't really bother. Why bother standing as godfather to a mere princess? But to be fair uh, to Henry, he did still go ahead with the lavish uh, christening that had been planned uh, at Greenwich, the place of his own birth, and uh, Elizabeth was christened there amidst great pomp and ceremony. And moving on from these celebrations, What was the mother-daughter bond like between Anne and Elizabeth in these early days? Well, Anne wasn't an obviously maternal woman. Um, She was more suited, I think, to the political arena uh, than the royal nursery. She was very forthright, a great intellectual. She had lots of ideas that she wanted to, um, to put forward. And yet... Elizabeth's birth seemed to change all of that. She doted on her daughter from the very beginning. There is no hint at disappointment or resentment on Anne's part. That was all Henry's. She kept 
Elizabeth with her pretty much constantly when she was conducting court business. She had a cushion made so that uh, the baby Elizabeth could be placed next to her. And more shockingly, Anne announced her intention to breastfeed Elizabeth herself. Well, that is shocking to the Tudors. It's not today, of course, but queens were not expected to breastfeed their own children. Even noble women weren't, not least because it was believed to hinder conception and Anne was under immediate pressure to try again. And after a short time with their parents, a royal infant was taken to a separate household to be raised as Elizabeth was to Hatfield House. How long did she have with her mother before this happened? Just three months, which is such a short time. It must have been heartbreaking for Anne to say goodbye to her infant daughter, but there was nothing she could do. She was deeply unconventional, as women and as queens go, but she couldn't really stand in Henry's way when it came to the upbringing of a royal offspring, particularly as Anne wanted to make it clear that Elizabeth was the true heir. So she had to bow to convention. And Elizabeth was set up in her own establishment at Hatfield House with about 50 servants for this tiny baby, including uh, four women who were listed as rockers. And and their job was to rock the cradle and uh, keep Elizabeth content uh, as a baby. But even though Anne had no choice in saying goodbye to her daughter, she made sure to appoint those who were going to surround Elizabeth and the Boleyn family predominated in the young Elizabeth's household. They were either related to Anne or they were associates of Anne whom she could trust. She wanted people to surround Elizabeth who would be a positive influence on her daughter and probably give Elizabeth a positive impression of her mother because that's something otherwise Anne couldn't control directly. And could you please give listeners um, a bit more detail about who these people were? Absolutely. Well, Sir John Shelton was head of Elizabeth's household and he was Anne Boleyn's uncle. And uh, her aunt Anne, uh, John's wife, uh, also had a senior position in the household. Um, Lady Margaret Bryan, now she was one of the only members of the household who hadn't been chosen by Anne, but she had an excellent track record in looking after royal infants. She'd looked after Elizabeth's half-sister, Mary, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, and she was really a safe pair of hands. But Anne made sure that Lady Margaret kept her updated of Elizabeth's progress, even down to things like weaning. Margaret had to consult with Anne first before she went ahead with that. Two other big influences in Elizabeth's early life uh, were Blanche Parry, she was her nurse. She was a Welshwoman, a young Welshwoman. And uh, she was, uh, it's a rather tenuous link, but she was the niece uh, of Lady Troy, who in turn uh, was associated closely with Anne Boleyn's best friend, Lady Worcester. So that was the connection there. Blanche really became the benchmark by which Elizabeth measured all of her ladies in later life because Blanche gave up everything to serve Elizabeth. She never married. She didn't have a personal life to speak of. She just dedicated herself to Elizabeth's service from Elizabeth's earliest days. And the other influence I would point to um, is a young lady closer 
in age to Elizabeth uh, than Blanche was, and she was called Cat Astley. And she didn't join Elizabeth's household immediately. It was a couple of years in. She was another fairly distant Boleyn relative, but she really uh, took a shine to Elizabeth and the feeling was mutual. She was a great playmate for the young Elizabeth. And actually, in Elizabeth's youth, Cat proved a rather indiscreet attendant and rather led Elizabeth astray. Uh, But Cat Astley and Blanche Parry, they really were the greatest of the early influences on the young Elizabeth. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And you speak of these influences in Elizabeth's early life. Did any of these people serve Elizabeth beyond her childhood? They certainly did, and Cat and Blanche absolutely found favour once Elizabeth was queen. Uh, In fact, they just stayed with her for the duration. They spent the rest of their lives serving Elizabeth. Blanche proved very long-lived. She survived all the way up to 1590, so she almost uh, lasted till the end of Elizabeth's reign. She was the longest serving of Elizabeth's attendants uh, by far. And I mentioned Cat Astley as well. She served Elizabeth for the rest of her life, although she was nowhere near as long-lived as Blanche. Elizabeth, I think, learned from what would become a traumatic childhood that there were few people whom she could trust. And so she tended to stay with those who had served her as a child and had proved their worth in those early days. And during this period of separation, you make it clear in your book that Elizabeth is beyond just being a child to her mother. She's a symbol of her fertility and thus a protector of Anne. What did their separation mean for Anne, not just as a mother, but as a queen whose power was in question? I think Anne felt incredibly vulnerable once Elizabeth had left court. Elizabeth was actually one of the few allies that Anne had, and admittedly she was just a powerless child, but as you say, she represented Anne's fertility. So I think in an ideal world, Anne would have kept her close as a reminder to people that she could bear a healthy child. Well, Anne made up for the absence by showering Elizabeth with beautiful clothes. Uh, I think it's probably thanks to Anne that Elizabeth grew up with a love of fashion. She certainly inherited that from her mother. And there were pretty made-to-measure caps and, and velvet dresses. And Anne went to enormous trouble and expense to make sure her daughter uh, was dressed as a princess. There's one lovely uh, entry in her account books uh, regarding one of those caps that she had made for her daughter. And it took uh, three separate boat trips um, uh, to uh, Greenwich and back before Anne was finally satisfied that it was the perfect fit uh, for her daughter. Well, of course, on the one hand, this was maternal indulgence, but on the other, Anne appreciated the need for 
display and to show Elizabeth dressed as a true princess because Elizabeth received important dignitaries, ambassadors at Hatfield and her other childhood residences. And Anne was determined to make a good marriage for Elizabeth. She was keen for her to marry into the French royal family. So she knew she had to really look the part. And the gifts you've just described there sound very elaborate. What sort of cost would they have come to? Well, they were in modern day equivalent, they, they would have run into the thousands, the tens of thousands. Anne is spending a huge amount on her daughter's wardrobe. And it's incredibly poignant um, because actually one of the last things that Anne ever spent money on was a dress for her infant daughter. But as well, uh, another intriguing reference in Anne's household accounts is to something called Pyrrhix. And I had to do a lot of research into what Pyrrhix were. And they're actually, um, they were a device to straighten the fingers because Anne was very proud of her own long slender fingers and she wanted Elizabeth's uh, to be the same. Uh, So whether or not it was the Pyrrhix or or just uh, genetics, but Elizabeth did actually grow up to have very long slender fingers of which she was inordinately proud. And looking back to the fashionable gifts that Elizabeth was gifted with, how did this impact her tastes as she grew into adulthood? I think undoubtedly Anne inspired this love of fashion, almost obsession with fashion. Now, it's probably an overestimate, but one ambassador said that Elizabeth as queen owned 6,000 dresses. She could never say, I've got nothing to wear. (laughs) Well, if that was an exaggeration, we do know that by the time of Elizabeth's death, she owned 1,900 dresses because they were all recorded in the inventory at her death. And and many of those dresses then passed to the next queen, uh, Anne of Denmark, consort of James I. And Elizabeth always dressed impeccably. And you can see from the colours as well as the fabrics that Anne Boleyn ordered for her daughter. She had a keen eye for fashion and for style. Many of the the dresses that Elizabeth uh, wore as a child were in uh, colours such as russet and orange and purple that would have really set off her red hair to perfection. And Elizabeth definitely retained that sense of style as she grew to maturity. And Elizabeth wasn't the only young woman present in Hatfield House. Another figure that comes up quite often in your book is Mary I. What was her personal experience growing up alongside Elizabeth? Well, poor Mary, it wasn't a positive experience. And much as I admire Anne Boleyn, her treatment of Mary was really very cruel. She wanted people to have no doubt whatsoever that Elizabeth was the true heir to Henry VIII. Mary was a mere bastard now because uh, her parents' marriage was null and void and Henry had proved that. So Anne made sure everybody knew that by making Mary join Elizabeth's household as a much inferior member of it. And When she travelled to Hatfield, uh, Anne made sure that Mary couldn't be seen by anybody. She sort of took a back route so that nobody would cheer Mary. And she was really made to serve her infant uh, half-sister, even though she was much older than her. And most people believed that she was much more senior to Elizabeth because 
Anne might try her hardest, but the majority of Henry's subjects saw Catherine of Aragon as the true queen and her daughter Mary as the true heir. So Mary suffered many indignities at Anne's hands and uh, Anne really did her best to wipe her from history, but ultimately she didn't succeed. And Elizabeth soon joined Mary in losing her mother. And despite the short time they shared together that we've just explored, she seems to have had many impacts on her daughter that are not discussed. Could you please explain to listeners how you think she impacted her daughter as a woman rather than a queen? Absolutely. I think um, Elizabeth inherited many character traits uh, from Anne, both, I'm starting with negative ones, actually, I will turn to the positive, but both could be very vicious. Uh, They could be strong-willed, quite mercurial. Uh, Their temper was, you you never knew quite what mood they were going to be in. But then on the flip side, both were incredibly brave, resourceful, resilient, disciplined, and I think it goes beyond mere coincidence just how similar Elizabeth was uh, to her mother. There's a big debate, of course, still rages about nature versus nurture. Well, Anne had been able to spend um, you know, much time at all with Elizabeth, and yet the two women were startlingly similar. Uh, Elizabeth was a real chip off the old block, if that isn't too much of a pun when talking about somebody from the Tudor period. And then let's turn to Anne's influences on Elizabeth as a royal. When it was Elizabeth's turn to have a coronation, what were some of the ways in which she paid tribute to her mother? Well, I'm really pleased you mentioned this because uh, Elizabeth's coronation was the first and probably the most vivid illustration of how she felt about Anne. And I want to just really counter this myth head on that Elizabeth really didn't think anything of her mother because she never mentioned her or she only mentioned her twice. It was more than that. And that it was all about her father. That was pure statecraft. Elizabeth knew what she was doing there in publicly identifying herself more with Henry VIII than with Anne Boleyn because she knew people questioned her right to the throne and she knew how controversial her mother was. So of course she would publicly identify with Henry, but she found ways of expressing her loyalty towards her late mother and her reverence, really, for Anne Boleyn. And her coronation was the first way in which she did that. And she did it in spectacular fashion. It was so unapologetically based on Anne's that Elizabeth even consulted the same designers that Anne had used. And she adopted the same themes, the same kind of classical themes. Um, The Virgin Mary was very much in evidence, except Elizabeth took that further and almost made herself a a Virgin Mary figure to be worshipped on earth. She wore the crown that Anne had had made uh, for her procession. There was a preponderance of white in the procession just as there had been for Anne's. But most startling of all, what Elizabeth ensured there would be were Anne's emblems everywhere. Her white falcon uh, was on full display. And then came the pièce de résistance. Uh, All along the processional route from the Tower to Westminster, there were a series of pageants or displays. And the first of these really would have made spectators' mouths drop open because it was a life-size family tree showing Elizabeth and her immediate ancestors and her mother 
Anne Boleyn was there, a life-size model of Anne Boleyn standing proudly next to Henry VIII. This was the first time Anne had been depicted since her execution, had even been mentioned. And yet here was Elizabeth really triumphing in her mother. And then as her reign began, how did these tributes to her mother continue? Well, right from the beginning, those of the Reformed faith were quick to praise Elizabeth's mother. Partly they were trying to win favour with the new queen, uh, but they knew they had to tread carefully because there had been rumours of sort of heresy on Anne's part. She'd imported banned religious texts during Henry VIII's reign, uh, but she had undoubtedly been a huge influence on Henry in ushering in the Reformation. And now there was a chance to celebrate that fact. And so you do get a lot of Protestant authors all dedicating their books to Anne's memory and Elizabeth uh, encouraged this activity. And suddenly Anne's name was no longer just associated with controversy and uh, the scandal of her downfall. Now it was something much more positive. But Elizabeth was discreet. I mentioned she didn't just immediately go about very publicly rehabilitating her mother. She didn't, for example, choose uh, to have the act uh, which had annulled her parents' marriage overturned because she knew that would be literally digging up the past, as would having Anne Boleyn's body moved from the Tower Chapel and reburied in, say, Westminster Abbey. She chose to do neither of those things. She was advised against it by her ministers, who knew that the situation in England was still incredibly tense. It was deeply divided between Protestants and Catholics, and Elizabeth was seeking compromise and a middle way. So she had to be a bit more discreet in supporting her mother. But support her, she certainly did. And despite the discreet nature of this support that you've just mentioned, are there any ways in which these influences aided or hindered Elizabeth's image as Queen? I think on the one hand, Elizabeth was battling against Catholic prejudice. Her mother Anne had been a great reformer. It's thanks to her, really, that the Reformation had been sparked. And so while that went down very well with the Protestant half of Elizabeth's subjects, the same was not true of the Catholic half. And so Elizabeth had a mountain to climb, really, in winning over those Catholic subjects who despised Anne Boleyn's memory and everything she stood for. And equally, uh, abroad, the great Catholic powers of Europe made no secret of the fact they saw Elizabeth as, as merely the daughter of the concubine and Berlin, and she was a heretic. And so they didn't feel that much loyalty towards Elizabeth. And in fact, there was a huge diplomatic incident between England and France because uh, France had allowed the publication of a book that slandered Elizabeth's mother as a Jezebel and a heretic. And Elizabeth was furious about this. So she did have a battle ahead of her. But Elizabeth approached that battle very differently to her sister Mary, who had 
publicly rehabilitated her own mother, Catherine of Aragon. She'd overturned the annulment of that marriage. Um, and she tried to return England to the Roman Catholic fold. But all of that had created even more trouble than if she just let sleeping dogs lie. So Elizabeth sought compromise. She was much more pragmatic than Mary. And she knew that she couldn't go in all guns blazing. She had to appease those who opposed her. And you've just said that Elizabeth was more pragmatic than her mother. How else did their approaches to the role of queen differ? Well, I think Elizabeth was very much inspired by her mother's example. But it's almost as if um, she took it a stage further. So Anne had the makings of being, I think, a great queen. But she didn't live long enough to prove it. Now, one of the things that I think Elizabeth took further rather than just differed in was this game of courtly love. Now, both Elizabeth and her mother were great flirts, I think. They loved to be adored uh, by their male courtiers. They loved to be the queen bee uh, that everybody aspired uh, to win favour with. Well, that ultimately had come back to bite Anne Boleyn in spectacular fashion when she was accused of adultery with five men, including incest with her brother, George. Um, And really, the only evidence for this was just gossip and hearsay based on Anne's naturally flirtatious style. Well, Elizabeth too, I mentioned, was a great flirt, but She set the boundaries much more clearly with her courtiers and she made it clear that there was a very um, obvious dividing line between herself and her male admirers uh, as they were or as they pretended to be. And she was forever unattainable. She set herself up as the virgin queen. So there was no suggestion that there had been any impropriety. Of course, there were still rumours about Elizabeth and certain members of her court, notably Robert Dudley. But Elizabeth made the messaging incredibly clear. She was there to be admired, to be venerated, but nobody was ever going to overstep the mark. And finally, Tracy, what do you think Anne Boleyn would have made of her daughter's rule? she would have triumphed in Elizabeth. It's one of the greatest tragedies of this whole story that Anne didn't live to know what a great queen her daughter would become. And I think we see that uh, on screen. There's a a film, Anne of a Thousand Days, in which um, Anne Boleyn, sort of the, the character of Anne Boleyn in that film, says to Henry, you know, my daughter Elizabeth will be a great queen. And and there's a healthy dose of hindsight in that script. Of course, Anne didn't know that Elizabeth uh, would be queen, but she would surely have gloried in that. I personally don't agree with the theory that um, Anne would have heartily approved of the fact that her daughter effectively condemned Henry's dynasty to extinction by remaining the Virgin Queen. She had no heirs and the Tudors died out. And the theory is Elizabeth did that deliberately to spite her father and that Anne would have approved of that. I'm not sure. I think that's taking it too far. But undoubtedly, Anne would have derived enormous satisfaction from knowing her daughter would go on to become, I would say, 
our greatest ever monarch. In Anne's eyes, revenge is a dish best served cold. That was Tracy Borman, author of a new book, Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, the mother and daughter who changed royal history, which is out now, published by Hodder in Stoughton. Tracy has appeared on this podcast many times over the years, so if you'd like to hear a monarchy masterclass that she did, taking us right through the history of the British monarchy, search for Monarchy Masterclass to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.